Chapter 43 of Kit and Kitty by Richard Doddridge Blackmore. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 43 The Great Lady. At this time I slept, or lay down to sleep, on a couple of good sized chairs in the kitchen, with a cushion laid along them, which had come from my uncle's pew in the Sunbury Church. He had established a new cushion there, on the strength of my marriage and Kitty's good clothes and the old one, being stuffed with sound horsehair, was not to be despised when upside down, and to save all risk of rolling, I set it against the front legs of the dresser. The door of the room was left wide open, and the front door also, unless the night was windy, for I had nothing to lose, having lost my all, and I only wished that anybody would come and try to rob me. It would have been bad for him unless he had been either Hercules or Ulysses, for I was armed with recklessness and eager to tackle any open foe. Nervousness, such as a happy man may feel when he hears a strange noise in the dead of the night, was an unknown power to me now, and I would have fought like a bulldog in his own kennel and enjoyed it. This was not the proper turn of mind for a young man to indulge in, that I knew as well as could be, but the blame lay elsewhere. Although I was very stiff and sore from the business of that awkward fall, and went at daylight to examine the place where the stranger must have stood, the ground was dry and hard just there, but I found enough to show me that I had not been deceived by any trick of the imagination. Not only had the soil been trodden by a foot unlike my own, but the thick mat of the thuja tree had some of the lobed leaves, which composed it and stood together like moss compressed, ruffled and crushed into one another, as if by the thrust of a heavy form. When I went to the place where I had stood over by the peach tree, and put my hat on the nail to represent my height, and returning to the clipped tree gazed through the nick of the fiddle at it, just as the face had gazed at me, I was obliged to stoop to bring my eyes to the level at which those eyes had been, which showed me that my visitor had been of some three or four inches lower stature, probably not more than five feet ten. I could not trace his footsteps far, nor make out what kind of boots he wore, except that there was no sign of hobnails, such as all our workmen had. It struck me that a man with such a face was not very likely to hurry himself, and the ground bore no traces of hasty flight. Neither were the branches of the plum trees, through which he must have retreated, broken." Probably he had retired at his leisure while I was disabled from following. There were no signs of entrance to be discovered at or near the door into Love's Lane, for all our men left work at the time of his visit, and no one had seen any stranger. What on earth had he come for? was the question which arose and could not be answered. There was nothing much to steal just there, for none of the tree fruit was ripe, and though darkness forbade entire certainty, I felt pretty sure that the owner of that face would call himself a gentleman. It seemed to me better upon the whole to say nothing about the matter, for my uncle would probably laugh at it as the product of my imagination, and as for the police, I knew too well that they would make nothing out of it. Only it was evident to my mind that this little adventure had some bearing on my trouble, and in spite of the dusk, I could swear to that face wherever I should come across it. My uncle would have stopped me from going to London on account of the injuries which I could not hide, for my hands as well as my knees were cut, but I went by the bus 
being very lame as yet and unable to walk without aid of a stick. Mrs. Wilcox received me very kindly, and I was glad to find her business thriving and the sharp boy released from the pots and growing very useful at the counter. "'It has done him a deal of good, it has, Mr. Kit,' she said when I ventured to hint that his employment had not been elevating. "'He knows every soul that is safe to give tick to, and as for bad shillings, of which I had a dozen, not one have we took since he come back. "'Ah, what a tradesman he will make! "'But now, sir, about your poor dear self. "'No one to stitch your knees better than that. "'Ah, the righteous is always punished in this earth.' I told her exactly how things stood, that everything was as dark as ever, that the neighborhood had been searched in vain, as might have been expected, that one or two false clues had been followed, not by myself, but by the police, and that now I meant to take the matter entirely into my own hands, as I should have done at first except for a private reason, which I told her, to wit, the disappearance of the money. She was angry that this should have been allowed to hinder me even for a day. But when I told her how it weighed upon my spirits and seemed to show that my wife was not at all in her duty to me, Mrs. Wilcox sided with me and said that everyone must do the same, whether I were right in the end or wrong. And then I asked her what she thought, and she said that she was afraid to say, Not that I don't know her, sir, she proceeded when she saw my disappointment as well as the inside of my own shoe, having had her almost from a bottle, and cut the best of her teeth upon my own thumb. But they changes so when they falls in love, as I know from my own experience, though going on then for thirty-five, that to make a prediction comes back on the mouth. I began it already, but it turned out wrong, and I said to myself, if you want to be considered above the average as you always was, you better wait and see how the cat jumps first. "'For that is the way of the women, sir, in general.' "'I was not in the mood to be satisfied with this, "'especially as she had said the same thing to my uncle "'as late as last Sunday, "'and gradually by coaxing her to begin "'and then contradicting her upon some little point of fact, "'I knew her opinions even better than my own, "'for my own had less to go upon. "'For it must be borne in mind "'that most of what I have entered about Sir Cumberlay Hotchpot and Mr. Donovan Bullrag comes from knowledge which I obtained long afterwards, and none of it was in my mind yet, beyond what my Uncle Corney and Sam Henderson had said, and the little that had been dropped by Kitty, who had scarcely had three weeks as yet to talk. Well, I shall do this, I said at last to Mrs. Wilcox. You have told me many things which will enable me to get on. Nothing can be worse than the things are now, and the greatest enemy I have got— if I am good enough to have an enemy, cannot say that I have shown impatience. I have felt enough of it, but nobody knows but myself how close I have kept it. I mean to make no disturbance now, but I shall just go and see the great lady. You'd better not, sir, cried Mrs. Wilcox. You would be like a dummy if she chose to speak out, and the humor might be on her, and you can't get nothing out of her except hard knocks. Hard words break no bones any more than soft ones butter parsnips. I shall go and see her if I can, and that villain of a son of hers as well. It is my duty to discover where my kitty's father is. She won't see you, Mr. Kit, unless it is to triumph over you. She loves doing that when anyone is down. But you won't have a chance of seeing Mr. Downey. They say he is out of the country altogether.' 
although my little Teddy swears he saw him Sunday night, and I never knew him to go wrong about a face before. But he must be wrong this time if there is any truth in words, and generally always he comes down this road whenever he is at home. At any rate, I shall ask for him. By the by, what is he like if I should chance to meet him? He have a great square face, sir, like the front of a big head, with a lot of sandy hair just above it and below, and he comes along the road with his eyes half shut just as if there was nothing worth looking at, and his eyes are as yellow as new-run honey, and a few butter spots upon his cheeks, where you can see them. He is a square-built young man, not so tall as you, but thicker, and his legs come after him as he walks, and he looks as if he never could be in a hurry. Thank you. I think I ought to know him now. It will be my own fault if I don't. Not a pleasant man to look at if you do him justice, Mrs. Wilcox. No wonder that people don't seem to like him very much. Ever so much worth to deal with than he is to look at, Mr. Kit. Keep out of his way, sir, that's my advice. I believe he is at the bottom of your trouble somehow, but what good he can get out of it surpasses me. After begging her to keep a sharp lookout and to send for me at once if she saw anything suspicious, I made the best of my way towards Bullrag Park, and was amazed at the change a few months had wrought. All the wilderness of work stood thick with houses. All the sloughs of Despond were firm, hard roads. Young trees were in leaf where surveyors' flags had waved, and public houses blazed with glass and gilt where bricks had smoldered. The great exhibition was in full swing, and the long streets were alive with cabs and brophams. However, the old house still looked grim and gaunt in its dark retirement, and the Scotch firs near it were as black as ever, and I passed with a throbbing heart the bay tree which had sheltered my love and myself from the snow. I ventured to gather a spray of this and put it as a keepsake beside my prayer book. After two or three rings I was admitted and shown into the place I knew so well, and it seemed to my fancy to be glistening still with the tearful eyes of my darling. Then Miss Geraldine, the younger and more gentle of the daughters, came and looked at me with some surprise, and said that she would show me where her mother was, and I followed her into a morning-room. The great lady looked as well as ever and received me with a stateliness which reminded me of her sister. She was beautifully dressed, so far as I could judge, and seemed in high good humor and inclined to patronize me. "'Mr. Orchardson, I think you said, my dear. Mr. Orchardson, who married our poor Kitty. Well, Mr. Orchardson, I hope you are happy. But surely, surely she did not do this. And if she did, you must not appeal to us. Sometimes she forgot herself, but still, and quite in the honeymoon. No, I'm sure it cannot be.' I was determined not to be provoked, although it was very hard upon me. This violent woman was pretending to believe that the scratches on my face from last night's fall were inflicted by my dear wife's nails. I did not condescend to answer that, and was certain that she knew I had no kitty now. "'I have ventured to intrude upon you,' I said, "'upon a matter of important business, madam.' to ask if you will kindly tell me how I can send a letter so as to reach Captain Fairthorne. He is at sea, I know, upon a voyage of exploration or something like that, and it may be very difficult to communicate with him, 
but I have a very important message. Nothing amiss with your poor wife, I hope. Oh, I should be so grieved if there were anything of that sort. She was flighty and wild, but with all her faults there was much that was good about her. You could never see it, Geraldine, as I did. Please don't tell me, Mr. Orchardson, that after all your goodness to her, for few would have married her knowing what she was, she has had the heart to deceive you. No, she has never deceived me, madam. There is no deceit in her nature. But, but for some good reason, doubtless, for the present, she has left me. No one can tell what it cost me to drag out these words to her arch-enemy, who was taking them in like a draught of nectar, not only for the fact, which she had known when it occurred, but for the anguish they were costing me. But she kept her countenance, like a mighty actress, that she might quaff her enjoyment at leisure to the dregs. I cannot understand what you say, Mr. Orchardson. It is simply impossible that poor Kitty, that your bride, that your dear wife you were so wrapped up in, should should have run away from you? I cannot say whether she ran or walked or how she went, but she is gone. You astound me. Geraldine, you had better leave the room. Such things are not fit for good young girls to listen to. Now, Mr. Orchardson, tell me all about it, but first accept my sincere condolence. Although, as you know, I was against the marriage, mainly for your sake, I can assure you. I knew her so well, but so soon, oh, so soon, I could not have expected it even of her. And did she inflict these sad wounds before she went? A tender remembrance? Oh, it is so sad, but one thing I must beg of you, do not be scoured by it. Do not conclude, as most young men would, that all women are bad, because this one has proved so ungrateful to you and after seven years of desertion I believe you will be at liberty to take a better wife. I want no better wife. There could be no better wife. I love her with all my heart in spite of this mistake, and I will never look at another woman while I live. What a noble husband! How could she run away? And doubtless was some ignoble wretch. No other would have taken her from your arms. But when did it happen? Do tell me all about it. And who has supplanted you so very, very quickly? One would hardly believe it in any story-book. And you, so devoted. Oh, how your heart must ache. Do let me order you a glass of wine. No wine, thank you. I cannot tell the story which would only increase your affliction, madam. Only one thing in justice to my wife. No one has supplanted me in her affection. She is as true to me as I am to her. She has been misled by some despicable trick, and by the God of heaven I will kill the man who did it. No horrible oaths before me, young man. Her face, lips and all, turned as white as a sheet as I spoke with the whole fury of my soul and voice and eyes, the wrath of a quiet man wronged of his life. Then we gazed into each other's eyes, till she was obliged to turn away. I could not expect you to have good manners, she said after sitting down and expecting me to begin. If you behaved like this before your wife, there might be some excuse for her running away. She has been used to the society of gentlemen, and that she has had in a humble way since she became my wife. 
You must thank yourself for what I said, for you labored to goad me up to it. And I mean it, madam. I spoke with no profanity. I am not given to swearing. Whoever has done me this foul wrong has ruined my life and shall pay for it with his own. Give him warning of this if you know who he is. I have nothing more to say than that. Fear for the moment overcame her fury, and I left that house with the firm conviction that my misery as well as my happiness had proceeded from it. End of chapter 43